Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Sebastian Braxton. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we are privileged to be here safely through another week. Father, we know that you decided in eternity past that we would be in this place today. And so, Lord, we pray that the reason why you brought us here, that you would accomplish that purpose. Lord, we have not come to listen to the words of a man, but we've come to listen to the word of God. And as we gather about your feet, Lord, may the sweet, sweet spirit of Jesus rest upon this place. May he do what Jesus promised, which is to guide us into all truth. And Lord, when we find that truth, may we sell all to purchase it and to walk in the light until, the G until Jesus comes again. This is our prayer. And we trust that you will help this to be our experience as we offer this prayer from our hearts in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. If I were to give this message a title, I would title it, First Things First. Years ago, when I was a teenager, my father made me read a book. I used to actually hate reading. I don't know if anybody resonates with that, but I used to hate reading. Now that's not the case, praise God. But I used to hate reading, and so my father required me to read this book by a gentleman named Stephen Covey. The name of the book was the, was the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey was a well-known consultant that had brought enormous amounts of change to corporations. Mr. Covey would do illustrations and took his show on the road. And so eventually he codified everything that he had learned into a book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Among these habits, he broke them up into two groups. The first group of habits he called independence. So these were things that helped you to be an effective individual. Then the second set of habits, the next three, were called interdependence, how you relate to other people. And so among those first three habits, he would start off by telling you, you need to be proactive. Your life should not be based on reacting to situations, but to act before the situation comes. Hence the word proactive. Then he moved into the next principle. First things first. He said oftentimes the issue in life 
is that things are out of order. We like to put second things first and first things second. But first things should always be what? First. And in order to illustrate this, he would oftentimes stand in front of an audience and he would have a table of two jars. One jar would be full of blue marbles and he would have a baseball in his hand and he would ask the audience a question. Can I fit this baseball into this jar? And everyone would look and say, well, the jar is filled with marbles. Of course you can't fit it. He says, well, let's try. He would invite someone from the audience and they would try to press this baseball into the jar. And guess what happened? Can anybody guess? What do you think happened? As he tried to force the baseball in. Now the jar would stay intact, but what do you think happened to the marbles? Start coming out, right? He says, isn't that kind of like your schedule? You try to fit things in and all of a sudden you keep forgetting appointments, things get missed. Oh, I forgot I had that stuff in the oven. That never happened to anyone, right? So. so he said, now, how many of you think I can fit this baseball and marbles in the same jar? Before, the hands that were up did not go up. No one believed it was possible. So then he goes under the table, takes out an empty jar that is exactly the same, and he puts the baseball in first. Then he takes the jar full of marbles, pours it in all the way to the top, and guess what? It fit. He says, do you know why it fit? Because I put the biggest, most important thing, what? First. You know what I believe? The promise of the Holy Spirit is the baseball. And you know, I believe that for many of us, we've been playing around with marbles, and yet now all of a sudden, for a three-day event in Sydney, we're going to try to force the baseball in. And many of you are going to walk away this weekend thinking, man, when am I going to add in time to pray for the Holy Spirit? When am I going to turn off the screen? When am I going to do this and this? You know, as a mom, you get stressed out. You know, you just tapped out. Kids are going crazy. You're like, man, I just want to sit down and watch a show. Now this brother telling me, turn off the TV. <laughs> it's the truth. Listen, I'll be real with you. That's one thing I will promise you. I can't speak from any other place but my heart. So in this mindset, it becomes a, let me try to fit this baseball in. And things start spilling over and you make a mess. Because we're trying to put six, seven, eight, nine, ten first. When you know what we need to do? Start with an empty jar. And then we put the first thing, what? First. first. And pour the little things around that first thing. And it just all seems to come together. So what I need you to do, based on this illustration, is everything you think you know about being a Christian, everything you think you know about living the Christian life, I need you to empty the jar. Your routine, this is how I like to have my morning worship, this is how I like to do this, this is what makes me feel spiritual, I need you to empty the jar. 
And we're going to start with a blank jar. And our goal is to get the baseball in first. Pour everything else in after that. You want to add other things? You want to add outreach? You want to add evangelism? You want to add worship with your family? You want to add all the? That's perfectly fine. But make sure first things first. Who cares if a man is having worship with his kids? He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Who cares if you put up a tent to do evangelism and the evangelist does not have the Holy Spirit? Who cares if your pastor is preaching a sermon every week, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Who cares if you got a board of elders who can govern the church, but don't have the Holy Spirit? Who cares to raise a child who can quote different Bible verses, sing all the songs, come and participate in the service, but doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Who cares if you got promoted to a conference position and you don't have the Holy Spirit? First things, not first. You know, the secret to time management is priorities. I'm telling you as a business professor, that was free. The next one will cost you $9.99. I'm just kidding. <laughs> The key to time management is priority. Your time and my time should be governed by first things first. You know, if you want to make sure something is done in your day, what should you do? Do it first. You try, oh, I'll get to it later. Guess what happens? Never gets done, right? They call it the island life. Oh yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. Because we don't like to do first things first. My son is five years old. This is one of the first principles I taught him. Come down, he says, oh, you know, I want to wake up and play with my toys. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, man, I'm starving. I'm so hungry. Oh, I want to. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But guess what? First things first. So now my son lets me know, Papa, before we have breakfast, before I play with my toys, I have my morning prayer. Why would you do that, son? Because first things first. That's right. First things first. See, I wish someone would have taught me that. It took till I was 17 to read a book to learn that. How much more effective could you be if you learned it at five? If that's true in human development, how much more in spiritual development? So unfortunately for many of us, we may just be learning this principle tonight. And that's okay. That's okay. As long as you learn it. We're going to go through some history A famous historian once said, the greatest lesson of history is people don't learn from it. That's the greatest lesson of history. So tonight, I want to go through some history in the Bible, because really most of the Bible is history. And we're going to learn from it based on this concept of 
First things first. You're in John chapter 1? Yes or no? All right, we're going to start in verse 29. It's going to be our passage of reflection. John chapter 1, verse 29. If you're there, you can say amen. The Bible says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? Of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Notice the next words of John in verse 31. I did not what? I did not what? Know him. What does he mean when he says that? He did not know him. Now, is the word did present tense, past tense, or future tense? Past. So, you know we have a saying sometimes, hindsight is 20-20. Right? You ever heard that saying before? You always think about what you should have done after you did what you did you should not have done. You're like, oh, I should have done that. Of course, hindsight is 20-20. So John is saying, I did not know him. So there was a time I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he was the Lamb of God. I didn't know that he was the Messiah. So John says, I did not know him. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 31. He says, but he, capital H, should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came what? What does your Bible say in verse 31? Baptizing, Baptizing with what? Water. With water. So here's a question for you. When I first became a Christian, I used to be an atheist, so I wasn't raised a Christian. So I remember coming to church, you know, for me it was a building, but... I understand, I appreciate it now as a sacred place where God is. But I would come to church to listen to people present, and it was like they assumed I knew certain things. Oh, you know John the Baptist. John the Baptist? Why do they call him the Baptist? Oh, because he baptizes people. And then they would show me the story. John is at the river preaching. How long will you, you generation of vipers, be baptized? I'm like, who came up with this, like? This guy was like some desert Jew just decided to immerse people in water. Come here. Go down into this dirty Jordan River. Have you been to the Jordan? It's a dirty river. Come here into the river. I'm going to take you under and bring you up. All right. You are cleansed from your sins. So you can understand. Coming from the streets, you know, when I was a kid, I lived in a very poor neighborhood in Chicago. And sometimes when it rains, the sewers flood into the streets, like three, four, five feet deep. My mom came home one day to the shock of her life that me and two of my siblings were swimming. We're like, man, a swimming pool right outside. So I mean, we were like backstroking, you know, sewage water, three feet deep. Right for us, we're like, oh, we're just having a good old time. My mom is like freaking about to lose her mind. That's sewage water. Like, so you're, you, you can imagine that here she is, you know, bathing us in all kinds of solutions and chemicals to wash our skin off. <laughs> After this experience. 
And we're like, okay, I get it, Ma. Okay, the water is dirty. Sorry. And she's upset. John is inviting people into this dirty river to baptize them. Why? What would possess a man to do this? Was this his own idea? The Bible is already answering the question where John says, I did not know who was the Son of God. I did not know who was the Messiah. But the one who sent me to do what? What did the person send him to do? To baptize people with what? In order for what? So that, no, what does the text say? Why was he baptizing with water? But that he should be revealed to what? To Israel. Are you with me? If you're lost in the sauce, just tell me. It's okay to talk to the preacher. I prefer interaction. We're studying together, so you can talk. So John says that I went baptizing with water because I'm trying to find the person who is the Messiah. So the whole purpose of John baptizing was to find one person. Every person he baptized, he was trying to see, are you the one? Can you imagine? Now notice what he continues to say. Verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit doing what? Descending from heaven like a dove and he did what? He remained upon him. Verse 33, I did not what? He repeats it again. But he who sent me to baptize with what? Water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the what? Son of God. When God sent his Son into the world, unless you were Joseph and Mary, you had no way of knowing. He was the Son of God. Even John, his own cousin, he didn't know. He said, but all of a sudden, while he was consecrating his life to God, and his parents are like, John, you are a special child. God sent you to be born for the purpose of leading the way for the Messiah, so that when God would send his son into human flesh, people could know who he was. How do you expect me to do that? He says, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the Jordan River, and I want you to baptize. And every person you baptize, one person... One person, when you baptize him, you're going to see the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove. And this time, the Holy Spirit is not going to come down and leave. He's going to come down and stay. You see, Jesus was the first time the Spirit of God came down and stayed. That's the life of Christ. The life of Christ and the ministry of Jesus is a life where the Holy Spirit descends upon it and it stays. So we talk about the image of Jesus, being like Jesus. The answer to that question is very simple. The life of Christ is simply a life where the Holy Spirit descended upon that being and stayed. And then, notice what he said. I saw the Spirit descending upon him. 
When did he see the Spirit descending upon Jesus? When he did what? When he baptized him. So I want you to follow this very, very closely. John goes baptizing with water because God told him that the one whom you baptize and you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, he's the Son of God. And no, not only is he the Son of God, he is the one that will do what? Do you remember what the text said? Go back to verse 33. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the what? Holy Spirit. Spirit. Notice, the person who is the Messiah or the Son of God is the same person who does what? What does he do? Baptizes what? With the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. But that is not what John called him in verse 29. What did he call him in verse 29? Behold the what? Wait, so hold on a second. Is he the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Or is he the one who's the Son of God that baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Oh, you got it. You didn't fall for it. We have a saying in in debate. Two things can both be true. So Jesus, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I did not know him. Who is him? Up until this point, we only know him as the Lamb of God. But as we keep reading, we find out he is the Son of God, and he's the one that's going to baptize with what? The Holy Spirit. So here's the question. According to John 1, 29 to 34, Jesus does two things. He takes away the sin of the world, and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Yes or no? So, these two things are very clearly revealed in the text. Now, here is the question that's key to our study for tonight. Which one comes first? Which one? Does he perform the function of the Lamb of God first? Or does he baptize with the Holy Spirit first? What does the history say? What happened first? The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. How does a lamb take away sin is a question. Why? Okay, first of all, I'm from the streets, right? I used to be in gangs and stuff. This was a very awkward passage for me. I actually love the Gospel of John. It's my second favorite book, only to Genesis. When I was reading the Gospel of John, I thought it was kind of funny that another man pointed at another man and said, the Lamb of God. I'm like, what man would think it's an honor to be called a lamb? Like, who walks around? The lamb. It's like, nah. (laughs) That's not really. So in, in modern English, we read the text and we're like, yeah, yeah. You know, we sing it all the time in songs. Oh, lamb of God, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, but we never think about the symbol. So let's put away 
our Australian minds for today, and let's go back to the mind of John and his disciples. When they heard him say, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world, let's analyze two basic facts. Fact number one, God has a lamb. Okay? Fact number two, lambs take away sins. In what universe? Where would you get the idea that an animal, specifically a lamb, can take away sins? Where would you get that concept? That's right, in the Old Testament. You know that book that people hate, Leviticus? They don't like, I mean, nobody loves to read the book of Leviticus, except for me, I guess. So, if you have a string thing in your Bible, can you just put it here in John? We're gonna go to Leviticus briefly. Leviticus chapter four. Leviticus chapter four, we're gonna start in verse 32. When you're there, you can say amen. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 32, are we there? Yes? Okay. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32, the Bible says, If he brings a what? A lamb. So we are on the right track. If he brings a lamb as his what? What is it called? His sin offering. So he's bringing a lamb as a sin offering. He shall bring a female without what? Blemish. Now, where is he getting this lamb from? Where is he getting it from? His own flock. Because back then, that is how you showed your wealth, was by animals and land. So when the Bible says Job was a rich man, he had 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, you're like, okay, we don't measure wealth that way, right? When the Bible says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, they're trying to talk about God's wealth, his ownership. See, we don't measure based on animals now, but back then you did. And not only did you have to take your own lamb, so if you sin, you have to take a lamb from where? Your own flock. So immediately God was teaching them in Leviticus through the sacrificial system. When you sin, you lose. Not only do you lose, notice what kind of lamb, according to verse 32. It says he shall bring a female without what? Blemish. Two things. You see, a female is different than a male. Right? Because females are what gives you more flock. So if you got to bring a young female, but not only a young female, you had to bring the young female without blemish. No injury, no discoloration, no disfigurement, no crippled, eyes are straight, no marks on the face, the fur is completely white. I know, right? <laughs> Sounds like I'm describing your ideal marriage partner. You're thinking to yourself, this lamb had to be your very best lamb. And the one that was likely to expand your flock. So you weren't just losing something. 
Even though that is true, brothers and sisters, when we sin against God, we lose. You see, people think that if they sin in secret, they're not hurting anyone. If I go home and I watch pornography on my phone, I'm not hurting anyone. If I decide to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm not hurting anyone. If I decide to watch this horror movie by myself, I'm not hurting anyone. If I decide I'm going to eat this unclean food secretly when nobody knows, I'm not hurting anyone. But the Bible says you're wrong. When we sin against God, we lose. And not only do we just lose, we lose our very best. And not only do we lose our very best, we lose our ability to expand. The more females you sacrifice, the less your flock will grow. You see, the feeling of sin was very important. You felt it. One female without blemish, gone. Another one without blemish, gone. Look, you have a whole bunch of male in your flock. That ain't going to give you more lambs. <laughs> Eventually, you just walk around with a whole bunch of male sheep. <laughs> That's all you got. You'll be hanging on to those, please, just whatever I need to feed you. I will put you on a vegan diet. <laughs> Live long. Because once those lambs are, those sheep are gone, what happens? That's it. So notice the last point to make here. The person who sinned is the one who also brought the lamb. Yes? So notice the next verse. We're almost done with Leviticus. It says, verse 33, then he shall lay his hand on where? On the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they killed the burnt offering. Now, notice here, the hand on top of the head. So he takes the lamb, he's going to his flock, he sinned against God. So now he's searching his flock for his very best young female lamb. And he has to take, you know, today we were driving by Avondale and we saw, you know, a little field of little lambs. And I mean, you just look at those creatures, they're so gentle and kind, like it just made me want to pull over, go play with them for a little bit. I know, right? You would never think that. Former Marine, you know, gangster. Now I've changed, right? You know the gospel is real when a gangster wants to go play with lambs in Australia. <laughs> in my mind, I'm looking at these animals and these creatures and I'm saying to myself, like, they look so gentle. There's a certain tenderness about lambs. They just get your sympathy. And to think for a moment when I looked into that field that if those were my lambs, that because of what I did on my phone in my room, I got to go outside. And I got to find not just anyone, my best one. And I got to pick her up and I got to carry her to the sanctuary. And as I'm walking with her, everybody knows why I have her in my arms. It's not because I love her or because I'm taking her for a walk. It's because I sinned. And when I get to the sanctuary, I have to take all my human weight, all 90 kilograms of my weight, and put my hands on top of her head and confess my sin.
to symbolize the transfer of my guilt to her. This little lamb. And then I have to take a knife. And I have to cut her throat. Right there. You see, that lamb, so precious, so much promise of future and hope and so much more life, tender and innocent. You can't get more innocent than a baby lamb. And I have to take the blade myself. God was trying to teach me something as a Jew. It's not only that you lose, it'd be great, right? You could drop the lamb off and another butcher kills them. No, you are the butcher. And as you slide that blade across that lamb's neck, you feel the tearing of flesh. You understand something about what you have done. You killed that lamb. Not literally, only. But you also know because you put your hands on top of that lamb, that lamb became your substitute. Your what? She is dying in my place. Which is telling me what should have happened to me. Are you following that? You take my place and this is what happens to you? It's telling me this is what should be happening to me. So that means when I sin, I'm taking the blade to my own neck. That's what I'm doing. But because I have a lamb, I don't have to. I can take it to the neck of this lamb as my substitute. And John points at Jesus. And he says, behold, the lamb of what? I want to finish this in Leviticus. So after the priest comes and takes of the blood, look down with me at verse 35, right at the end of the verse. It says, then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make what? Atonement, meaning cleansing. He shall make atonement for his what? His sin that he has committed, and it shall be what? Forgiven him. So cutting the lamb, the priest catching the blood, sprinkling the blood in the sanctuary, taking the lifeless body of this bleeding out victim and putting it on the altar and burning it. He says, this thing has now made atonement for you. It has cleansed you from your sin and your guilt. You are now forgiven. Now, in that moment of time, John 1 says, behold the Lamb of what? Which takes away the sin of the... Hold on a second. You see, we should have caught it. But you see, because we're not Jewish, we don't catch it. A Jew would understand something's wrong. Because according to Leviticus, the one who has the sin is the one who loses the lamb. Are you tracking? But he said, this is the lamb of, which takes away the sin of God. 
Wait, the sin of the? So who has the sin? The world? Who has the lamb? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we sin and God loses. So that means now we have to transfer the pastures. It's not a young Jewish man walking into his flock at a small little innocent female lamb. No, no, no. Now we're talking about God. And God has to go search his very best. When John said Jesus was the Lamb of God, he was saying Jesus was heaven's very best. Innocent, pure, gentle. And God had to carry his son. And everyone knew why he was carrying him. Because God sinned? No, who sinned? The world. How come the world can't provide its own lamb? Because we don't have one without blemish. That's why Micah said, with what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How can I come before God? Knowing that I wronged him, there is no substitute. But John says, behold the Lamb of God. God says, I saw that the world didn't have a lamb. I saw you didn't have an offering. You had nothing to bring. But you know what I did? I went into my heavenly pastures. I opened up the stable and I found my very best. The very express image of my person. The one who is in the bosom of the father. The one that no man has seen God at any time save the son. The one who is the brightness of my glory. I grabbed him. And the world was able to put its hands upon his head and transfer its guilt. To take away the sin of the world. What kind of lamb is this? Because back then, that lamb was taking away the sin of one man. One sin. But you see, God's lamb? <laughs> God's lamb? He can take away the sin of the whole world. All the world, every sinner, of every generation, of every single sin ever committed, could lean their hands 
on the head of Jesus. And as they lean their hands on the head of Jesus, there is a substitute for you and for me. And we can go to God and say, I can come just as I am. Why can I come? Because guess what? I got a lamb for my sin. And you right now sitting down, burdened under the guilt and the shame of your sin. The Bible says this lamb takes away the sin of the whole world. You don't think he can handle your sin? Because you're not the world. And even if you were, he could take care of that. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, we said first things first. So that means when Jesus came down, his ultimate goal was to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. But he said, hold on, that's a little marble. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I got to do what? First things first. And in order for us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus has to first take away our what? Our sin. And then we're just going to come here and talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's just pray. And if we pray long enough, and if we pray frequently enough, and we pray with tears and angst and emotion and passion, we're going to get the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no, first things first. No spirit comes until Jesus is lifted up on that cross. No spirit comes. That Peter, that was Peter. I want you to listen to what I'm saying. The same Peter that denied Jesus saw him on a cross. Jesus being lifted up on that piece of wood did not change Peter. Did not change the disciples. They were still hiding in the upper room at the resurrection. They weren't even there. It was Mary Magdalene who was there. Nicodemus is the one that provided the grave, not his disciples who walked with him for three years. It was Joseph of Arimathea who donated it, not Peter, not Judas, not Paul. None of these people were there. So here was Christ lifted up on that cross. Not one individual was changed, but a thief on the cross, but a centurion. That's all the cross could accomplish. But the spirit comes down and 3,000 are baptized in a day. And Peter is preaching in the same portico with boldness. What happened to you? Jesus baptized me with the Holy Spirit. But in order to do that, he had to do first things first. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If we want God to fulfill this promise, brothers and sisters, we got to do first things first. There's a song that says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know the word nothing means? Nothing. 
it means no thing. What can wash away your sin? See, you think that, you know, you can sleep with all those dudes, and now because you come to church and you're involved in evangelism, that can wash away your sin? No, it can't. You think because of all the shameful things you did secretly in your room, that if you just come to enough youth conferences, you can wash away your sin? You think your guilt is just going to eventually melt away? It won't. Because John said, behold. The Lamb of God. You who are burdened by sin, and you have nothing to recommend yourself. Guess what you got to do? You got to find a lamb. And you can look right now and say, I don't have a lamb. I don't have anything to bring. It's okay. Because when you look at Jesus, you realize God provided himself a lamb. Can you imagine? Jesus anticipated our need before we even knew we had it. We cannot have the Holy Spirit until we allow Jesus to do first things first. Take away the sin, take away the guilt, take away the shame. I can tell you right now that this message will only get harder and harder and harder as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Because as Jesus takes away your sin and your guilt and your shame and he becomes your best friend, he becomes your peace, your Lord, your wisdom, your rock, your refuge, your dwelling place. And then you got to remember that was the person hanging. That's why we can't move past it. And that's fine. But tonight is the night where it begins. It begins with allowing the lamb to do what he was sent to do. Take away your sin. It's that easy. He can just take it away. Gone. Tonight, Jesus is calling us to bring it to him. He's calling us to let him be our substitute. He's calling us to trust him. That the lamb can do what he says he can do. It doesn't matter how long you had to sin. It doesn't matter how deep, how dark. 
He can take it away. It doesn't have a qualifying adjective on the sin. All it has to be is sin. He can take it away. And you know what? He can do it without your help. He doesn't need your help. He just needs you to give him permission. So you know, Jesus is calling us tonight through a very simple invitation. He says, I want to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's my goal. How many people here want the Holy Spirit? Okay. So you raise your hand. I raise my hand. We want the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, but we got to do first things first. We got to take the baseball, put it in first. I want to quote a poem that I love, and I'm going to make my invitation. Because I know my time is up. There's a poem written by a teacher back in the 1970s. I love this poem, so I just memorized it. She was describing an event she saw with one of her students. And she was so moved by this experience that she wrote a poem about it. And this is how the poem goes. She says, he came to my desk with a trembling hand. The lesson was done. Have you a new lesson for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. So I took his lesson, all soiled and blotted, and I gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. Later on that evening, I came to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. And he took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. You can come to Jesus tonight and you can say with a trembling heart, your life is not done. Have you a new life for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. And Jesus can take your life all soiled and blotted and give you a new one, all unspotted. And into your tired heart, he'll cry, do better now, my child. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Our Father, tonight, is the night. A night where the Lamb can do only what He can do. 
a night that we can come and allow him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, we want the Holy Spirit. We want you to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we realize tonight that first things have to be first. Before you baptize us with the Holy Spirit, you must take away our sin. And so, Lord, tonight, if there's someone under the sound of my voice that wants to come to the throne, you can have a trembling heart. That's okay. But you want to come to the throne even with a trembling heart. I don't know what you've done today. I don't know what you've done this week. I don't know what you've done the past several years. But you can come to Jesus and the Lamb of God can take it away. If you want Jesus to just take it away, that sin that so easily besets you, that brings shame and guilt, a cycle of pain and emotional stress, Jesus can take that away tonight if you will just come. If that is your prayer, that you want Jesus to take that away. I want to invite you to come right here to this altar. I'm going to pray for you and with you. Come to Christ. He'll take it away. Amen. Amen. Anyone else before I pray? Spirit is touching hearts. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for the beauty, the beauty of Christ, the Lamb of God that is able to take away the sin of the whole world. And Father, that gives us so much confidence tonight because we feel like we have a world of sin in our own hearts. But we are so thankful that if we come to Jesus, Jesus can take away all our sin, all of it. And Lord, this is the first step to experiencing that baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we have come to this altar tonight, we've come for special prayer. We've come to respond to your call. We hear your spirit talking to us, inviting us to come to Jesus and asking him to take away our sin and our guilt and our shame. We can roll it all upon Jesus. And Lord, you can send us away comforted and in peace, leaving our sins at Jesus' feet. Lord, please do not allow any of us to leave this altar with the burdens that we came May we be able to leave this place confident that we are beloved children of God, accepted and forgiven. And now, Lord, move us forward to your ultimate vision of filling us 
with your hallowed presence. This is our prayer. And we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we offer this prayer from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. Listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Today I would like to share with you Psalm 26, which also is a psalm of David, and it is a prayer for redemption. Exonerate me, O Lord, for my life has been guided by right principles, because my trust is in the Lord. I shall not slide into wickedness. Question me, O Lord, and test me. Examine my mind and my heart. Your tender love is always before me and leads me to walk in your truth. I have not joined with your idol worshippers, nor will I participate with the hypocrites. I revile the bands of wicked and will not be seen with those who plan evil. I will wash my hands in the ritual of innocence and in innocence I will attend your altar, O Lord, so that I may give voice to thanksgiving and tell the world of your wonder-working power. O Lord, my desire is to be in your house, in the tabernacle of your glory. Do not put me in the valley of sinners, nor place my life with those who thirst for blood. They only plot to further their wicked schemes, bribing the weak to achieve their ends. As for me, I will continue to walk in the right path. Redeem me, O Lord and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the congregation of your people, I will sing praises to you. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.